0: Good morning, listeners, and I hope today finds you well. My name is Wilson McCoy with the College Hills Church of Christ here in Lebanon, Tennessee at 1401 Leeville Pike, and I want to say a big thank you for tuning in today and for listening to our weekly radio program. Always know that you are welcome to come visit us on campus at College Hills if and when you You are able. We would love to have you as a guest. And in the meantime, if you would like to know a little bit more about our congregation, then one of the best places to do that is at collegehills.org where you can find the latest on our meeting times, links to different ministries that we are participating in, but also some other links to other ways to engage our church right now. We have a online streaming service that happens every Sunday morning at 845. We also have some campus gatherings on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday evenings, and we would love for you to come and join us whenever you can make it. If you're not at a place where you can do that now, that is okay. We thank you for listening in, and if you happen to have a iTunes account, always know that every Monday we release our pulpit sermon and our radio sermon so that you can listen to that in case you miss it on Sunday morning. If you would just go to your iTunes account and search for College Hills Church, you will find our podcast, you can subscribe to it, and those will show up each week for you to listen to. We are moving through a series that we are calling Snapshots of Good News, and we are looking at passages in the Gospels that give us insight into... The good news, the gospel of Jesus, but also not just for us to look at, but also for us to live out. And I believe that's especially true of our passage today in Luke chapter 15, a very well known passage that I think has some new insights for us as we think about what the good news is and how it might call us to live differently. And so if you have your Bible, Open up to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Which one of you... I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Dear God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for these words of Scripture that continue to speak fresh to us. And although these are some familiar stories, I pray that you would allow them to speak new to us today. I pray that you would give me the gift of preaching and teaching, and you would give us all the gift of open hearts, that we would hear your voice and we would be transformed by it more into the image of your son Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. The tricky thing about parables is that they are hard to pin down. As soon as you think you have a parable cornered, as soon as you think you have it figured out, it shoots between your legs and off you go trying to chase it down again. And our parable that I read today is no different. It is one that is very hard to pin down. Because as soon as I think I have it tightly secure in both of my hands, it seems to wiggle free and off I go, chasing it down again, trying to pin it down with answers. But this parable, like so many other parables, keeps raising questions and can't so easily be pinned down with answers. This parable raises questions like, who are these people that Jesus is talking about? Who is this shepherd, really? A shepherd who abandons 99 sheep for just one. Is one sheep that important? Can this shepherd love a sheep that much? Does he not realize that he still has 99 sheep, 99 I might add, who he leaves in the wilderness to go get one? What about their safety? Some may say this reflects a compassionate shepherd, but I also think it might reflect irresponsible shepherding. Take care of the ones you have, right? And what is this about searching until he finds it? Until? Really? I mean, this search could take a while. This search may take him some places that he doesn't really want to go. You're telling me he's going to search until he finds it? And then, when he actually does find it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. Really? I mean, wouldn't a scolding be in order teach that sheep who the shepherd really is? Isn't it a bit excessive to throw a party for the community for just one sheep? I mean, you still have 99. And who is this woman while we're asking questions? A woman who already has nine coins, each representing about a day's wage, but she feels it necessary to turn her house upside down just to find one measly coin. She lights, sweeps, and searches carefully until she finds it. Doesn't she know that it will eventually show up stuck between the cushions right beside an old bubblegum wrapper? That's how coins work, right? Coins always have a way of showing up eventually. Does she really have to make such a big fuss? Is it really necessary to have a lost coin party? I mean, it's just one coin. I was recently reading an article that remarked how these parables of Jesus often feel surreal. And so when we read them, we feel like we're more so watching a movie than actual real life. You know, watching a movie where there's that one lone ninja who is somehow able to elude and defeat a mob of thugs without even getting scratched. A movie where you have that one person who randomly starts dancing in a supermarket because that's what you do in a supermarket, I suppose. And what do you know? Everyone else just happens to know the same song and dance. And off they go doing their routine among the tomatoes and celery. We watch these movies and we smile for the entertainment value. We like that they're surreal. We might even sing along, but we don't actually believe this stuff happens, right? They're just movies. And sometimes when we take that same spirit into these parables, we have the same response. We don't really think that the stuff that Jesus talks about in these parables really happens in real life, do we? I mean, they're just parables. They're just these stories tossed alongside of Jesus as he does his ministry. And so, these stories about these kinds of people, this seemingly irresponsible shepherd, this overly passionate woman, deep down, we kind of wonder, do these people really exist? But that's not the most important question to be asking when we read these parables. The most important question to be asking is, does this kind of God really exist? Uh, There is a well-known scholar in New Testament studies who says that when it comes to parables, Jesus is describing for us what the world would be like if God were in charge. I love that. Jesus in parables is describing for us what the world would be like if God were in charge. These parables, in his argument, are glimpses into how things are in the kingdom of God. They are intended to give us snapshots of who God is and how He works. And while this may sound fascinating at first, once once I let that sink in in relation to these parables that I just read, then I'm a little more troubled than I am relieved. I mean, who is this God that Jesus points us to in these passages? A God who actively seeks the loss? A diligent searcher? But I thought we responded to invitations. I thought God threw out the bait, leaned back on his pontoon boat, and let the fish come to him, right? But he searches until he finds? What if it gets messy? What if it takes God a while? Is he still willing to be a diligent searcher? Who is this God that Jesus points us to in these stories? A God who celebrates and rejoices and throws parties in heaven? But I thought heaven was just a bunch of angels sitting around, strumming harps and meditating quietly beside waters for thousands of years, disengaged from our lives below. You're telling me there's rejoicing in heaven about stuff that's going on here and now? Who is this God that Jesus points us to? A God who takes more delight in one sinner found than in 99 righteous? But what about my faithful service? I mean, I grew up in church. I've never strayed very far from a community of faith. I never got into what some might consider a lost season. I've tried to be a good Christian as long as I could remember. I have Bible verses memorized. I grew up in a youth group. I went to a Christian college. And I've always tried to be a good follower of Jesus. And so you're telling me that God is more excited about one drug addict or one thief who comes home who doesn't know Jesus from Paul? He's excited more about those people than about my faithful service. I am pointed at this God by Jesus today, and I don't know how I feel about this God. This God can't really exist, right? Is this really what the world is like if God were in charge? And to those questions, I say, no. No, this kind of God doesn't exist. Unless, unless we start looking at the ministry of Jesus, the divine made fully human. And then, well, then we may be a bit troubled because of what we see. Because what we see is a Jesus who actively seeks the lost, a diligent searcher. He walks out through Galilee, rubbing shoulders with the lame and the poor, touching lepers, telling tax collectors and fishermen, the rejected and the uneducated, that they, they have a place in his kingdom. A Jesus who celebrates and rejoices on earth. All we have to note is the accusation thrown out at Jesus back in chapter 7 of Luke, where he's accused by some who say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees were questioning the morality of Jesus. They were calling him a partier they were pointing out that he was hanging out with the wrong kinds of people. A Jesus who takes more delight in one sinner than in 99 righteous. You know, Jesus never really fares well with those who would consider themselves righteous. In fact, Crowds of people, crowds of rejects to be exact, flocked to him, while the righteous ones who showed up were more often than not looking for a way to trap him, if not kill him. And so when we ask this question is this God really the God that we believe in? We have to ask the question is this what Jesus is like? This past week, I was listening to a podcast that I try to listen to every week. It's a devotional podcast. It tries to help me orient my thoughts in a good and godly direction to start the week. And this week's particular episode was on Jesus being the image of the invisible God. And the author began to talk about when he was working with a small group of new Christians, that one of the things that he kept telling them was that if they want to know what God is like, then they need to look to Jesus. And one of the women, a few weeks into this study, unexpectedly one day, began crying, began weeping, was very upset, seemingly out of nowhere. And the leader of this group, the man who does this podcast, stopped a small group and he looked at her and asked her why she was crying. And she collected herself and she began to talk about how no one in all of her years of bouncing from church to church and then bouncing out of church ever told her to Look to Jesus in order to see what God is really like. And she talked about the beauty that she now believed God to be, the beauty she now believed God to hold because of the ministry she saw in Jesus. And the man went on in this podcast to talk about how so many of us and so often can grow up in church and maybe bounce around from church to church and maybe even bounce out of church and forget that if we want to know what God is like, then we just need to look to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. And for some of us, that's really comforting. In fact, it was really comforting and attractive to these crowds of rejects, and that's part of the reason why they flocked to Him. That's part of the reason why they spent time with Jesus, ate with Jesus, fellowshiped with Jesus, and why the righteous of Jesus' day, even those 99 righteous, were not always drawn to Jesus, but more often than not, tried to trap Him. And when you begin to let these truths sink in, these truths about Jesus being the fullest glimpse of God, then it might begin to make a bit more sense why we find the Pharisees and scribes reacting the way that they do to Jesus. Back in Luke chapter 5, after Jesus was found to be in the house of Levi the tax collector, some of the Pharisees there flat out ask him, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. But as Luke progresses his gospel, the picture of Jesus only gets darker for these righteous groups. Jesus continues his table fellowship with all types of people, showing acceptance and shared life. Jesus continues healing and calling all people to him. And then what's really interesting about our passage this morning is that in just a A verse before ours, at the end of chapter 14, Jesus declares this, Let anyone with ears to hear listen. Listen. Listening was that inquisitive posture of discipleship. And then, the very next verse, the first verse of chapter 15, it says that the tax collectors and sinners we were coming near to listen to Him. Slow down over that detail. The tax collectors and sinners were listening. They were the ones who were taking the posture of discipleship. The unclean and the impure were finding their way home to Jesus. And so, so by the time we get to chapter 15 the questioning of the Pharisees has turned into grumbling. And they are saying, this one, this Jesus, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Chapter 14 ends with this call to listen, this call to discipleship. And then the beginning of 15 starts with this scandalous claim that tax collectors and sinners were the ones who were listening. They were taking the posture of discipleship. And then in the very next verse, we see this big theme play out with the Pharisees who are grumbling. Grumbling because this fellow Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. Questions to Jesus have turned into complaints about Jesus These Pharisees and scribes were suspicious of this man who claimed divine connection because, and this is key, because this was not the God they were accustomed to hearing about. What they saw in the ministry of Jesus, this glimpse of the divine, was scandalous to them. It was unfamiliar territory to them. It was not the God that they we're used to hearing about. And so, it seems natural for them to be suspicious. It seems natural for them to be angry and muttering. It seems natural for them to be asking questions and making complaints of Jesus and of God. But they, they are not the ones who are asking questions in our text this morning. The one who is asking questions in our text this morning is... Jesus, Jesus brings this very important question to the table in our text today. Which one of you? Which one of you, if you had a hundred sheep and losing one of them, would not go and leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one who is lost until he finds it? Jesus asks the Pharisees and scribes to play shepherd. He forces them with this question to stop their grumbling suspicion and to look inside and ask themselves some questions. What would I do if something that belonged to me went missing? What would I do If I searched and searched and searched and then found it, what would it take for me to really break out into celebration? What would I do if I were on the shepherd's end of things? And that, that is a harder question to ask when you think about it. It's easy to point it's easy to accuse. It's easy to be suspicious. And these are things that religious and righteous people can get tempted into so quickly. But what's harder? What's harder is to look on the inside. Jesus throws this parable alongside the Pharisees and scribes and Yes, it does raise some questions about God, but it also raises some questions about them. And Jesus throws this parable alongside us this morning. And yes, it raises some questions about God, but it also raises some questions about us. Jesus asks us to play Shepherd, he puts us on the shepherd end of things. And he says, which one of us, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, would not go and leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one who is lost until he finds it? Which one of us would be like my friend Dave? who takes a group of college students to Panama City every spring break and lingers among the beaches and bars and finds people who they can talk to and listen to because so many of them are lost. Which one of you will welcome back Ray? Ray is a guy I went to church with growing up. And the thing about Ray was he would come back to church and then he would leave again and he would come back to church and leave again. And he did that so many times that eventually some people just began to roll their eyes at Ray instead of throwing open their arms time and time again. Which, which of you... Which of you will be willing to turn a field or a house or a community upside down until every cold, lost person is found and welcomed to a warm home and a loving family who throws a robe on them gets the fatted calf and throws such a party that the neighbors come out of their homes and call the police because they wonder what all the ruckus is about. They wonder how could you associate with those kinds of people. And as they ask us those questions, the only answer we'll have is, well, we're just bringing heaven to earth. Jesus throws this parable alongside of us this morning. And yes, it raises some questions about God. But it also, it also raises some questions about us. To the one who has ears to hear, may they listen today. Amen.